Good evening, and welcome to tonight's event. I'm Dr. Jacob Renneker, the Scholar-in-Residence for the John A. Woodson Foundation and host for this Come Follow Me Interfaith Conversation Series. One of our primary goals of the John A. Woodson Foundation is to inspire members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to engage in meaningful interfaith dialogue and community outreach in order to strengthen our local communities around the world. So for our conversation this evening, we're going to talk about parts of the Joseph and Egypt story from a Jewish perspective, and we'll probably be spending most of our time in Genesis chapters 45 and 49 for those of you following along at home. We'll also have our discussion here for the first 40 or so minutes and then the remaining 20 minutes or so will be left for questions from you, our wonderful audience. Finally, you can find video replays of this and all of our events along with links to podcast recordings of what you'll hear tonight and any of our past conversations from this series at www.widsofoundation.org. So enough of that. Now our guest tonight is Rabbi Annie Tucker. Rabbi Tucker is the senior rabbi at Temple Israel Center in White Plains, New York, having previously served congregations in both suburban Chicago and Princeton, New Jersey. A Wexner graduate fellow, she did her undergraduate graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania, and then earned a master's degree in Jewish education from the Jewish Theological Seminary, continuing on in the seminary's rabbinical program where she was ordained in 2006 with a concentration in pastoral counseling. Rabbi Tucker is the incoming secretary of the Rabbinical Assembly where she also chairs the Joint Placement Commission. And one of the highlights of her work is teaching Bible Baboker, which is morning Bible, a Shabbat morning class on the weekly Torah portion. So Rabbi Tucker, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here with you and with our audience. Well, let's jump right in here to the story of Joseph in Egypt. So like I said, we're going to be focusing on a couple different episodes within that story, which are the reconciliation of Joseph with his brothers in Genesis 45, and then Jacob's blessing of his children in Genesis chapter 49. So before we dig into Genesis 45, from a Jewish interpretive perspective, Rabbi Tucker, could you give us a little background on Joseph? how he gets to Egypt, where he is now once we get up to the story in chapter 45. Absolutely. The Joseph story is a great story, as I'm sure many of us will remember. And the two most important things to remember about Joseph, and especially the beginning of his story, is that he is a dreamer. Dreams are going to be a theme that follow him throughout his life, and actually will be something that we'll talk about a little bit when we get to chapter 45. And he's also the favorite child of his father. Jacob is one of 12 brothers. He is one of two brothers born to a mother that was his father's favorite wife. She died um, during childbirth, and so Joseph is a, is a favored child, and his father shows his favoritism by giving him a multicolored coat. And in addition to the fact that Joseph is already sort of branded or singled out by his father for being a favorite, Joseph also receives these incredible dreams from God. And the dreams sort of put Joseph in a position of authority over his brothers and actually over his parents as well. Dreams with uh, a sun and moon and 11 stars bowing down, sheaves of grain bowing down. And so as we can imagine, Joseph's brothers have a lot of animosity towards him. And this braggart, this arrogant brother who imagines himself better than them in all kinds of ways. And so Joseph Joseph's brothers get the opportunity at some point they are alone with Joseph away from their parents house and they have the opportunity to do with Joseph what they may. They originally are going to put him in a pit and perhaps leave him for dead but instead a band of Ishmaelites come along and they end up selling Joseph to this band of travelers. He gets brought to Egypt, he gets brought to the house of a man called Potiphar, a very wealthy and powerful man and unfortunately while he is there he gets himself in some trouble. Um, it's not really his fault but Potiphar's wife actually accuses Joseph of 
of making sexual advances against her. And even though Joseph, by all accounts, is innocent, he gets thrown into jail. While he is in jail, he ends up interpreting dreams for some of his fellow cellmates, one of whom ends up being let out of jail and ends up in Pharaoh's palace. And when Pharaoh eventually has dreams that he also cannot interpret, this man recalls back to Joseph and says, I have just the guy for you. Let me bring him. He will interpret your dreams. And Joseph is brought out of jail to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. Indeed, he does so successfully. And the dreams of Pharaoh end up foretelling that there are going to be seven years of famine in Egypt. But before the seven years of famine, there are going to be seven years of bumper crop. And so Joseph, in addition to foretelling this dream, he also gives a little bit of advice to Pharaoh. He says he would be very wise during those seven good years to collect grain, collect food, store it away, have it for the seven years that are to come. And Pharaoh is so impressed that he makes Joseph second in command over all the land. And that's really where this piece that we're going to talk about kicks off, right? Joseph is in a high position of power in Egypt. His brothers are back in Canaan. Canaan has faced starvation during the famine. They didn't have the foresight that Joseph had brought to Egypt. And they come to Egypt seeking food and find themselves before the man that is their brother. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And that's sort of where this piece begins in, in Genesis 45 that I think we're going to talk about a little bit more. Thank you. Great summary. So, you know, Jewish community has had this as part of the scriptures for you know a, a long time. So you've had you know a few thousand years or so to kind of process the story. So of the number of different interpretations that different Jewish interpreters have provided for the story of Joseph in Egypt confronting his brothers, how he reacts to them and his ultimate reconciliation. What's one of your favorite or one that kind of stands out to you among that traditions that you find yourself drawn to? Yeah, I think I'll actually start with my least favorite interpretation and we'll, um, we'll get into the interpretations I like less because I think one of the things I love about Judaism and I love about Jewish approaches to Bible is that we do tend to read the text with a multiplicity of meanings and a multiplicity of perspectives. And the first perspective, sort of the most plain contextual one is something that we call pshat, sort of the plain meaning of the text. And I think in certain ways, the pshat here is the interpretation that I like the least for reasons that I can explain. But the pshat, the plain meaning of the text here is that Joseph is exacting vengeance upon his brothers. He was treated really terribly by them all these years back in Canaan. He now has the opportunity being in a position of power to pay them back for the wrongs that were done to him so many years ago. And although there certainly is some amount of compassion, right, we see that Joseph cries tears and he eventually reveals himself to his brothers and they reconcile. You know, one line of interpretation is that, that he's angry and perhaps traumatized upon seeing his brothers at first. And he's looking to pay it back in certain ways. So not a particularly spiritually redemptive <laughs> interpretation, but I think in, in a lot of ways, sort of a very plain, basic reading of the text. So you mentioned that was your least favorite, perhaps, approach there. So what is one of your preferred approaches to this yeah, particular? Yeah, so the, the next two, I like each of them in different ways. And the next approach comes from the 13th century commentator, Spanish commentator, Ramban. And he points to those dreams that I mentioned um, when I was starting to share the story and reminds us that Joseph is a faithful man and he's a dreamer. And Joseph remembers those dreams too. And he recognizes that those dreams haven't yet come true, right? His dreams, all 11 stars, all 11 brothers had to come down to Egypt. And at this point, actually, I stopped here, I guess, in telling the story. But if we remember what happened, the brothers show up, 10 of Joseph's brothers show up, they don't have the youngest brother, Benjamin, who is Joseph's only 
true brother with them. And Joseph sort of puts them through their paces. He accuses them of being spies. He finally says that he sort of believes them, but that he can't really help them fully until they bring back their last brother. And he keeps one of the remaining brothers, Shimon, sort of as a surety. He gives them some amount of food and he sends them back to Canaan to bring back Benjamin, knowing that Benjamin was left behind because he was so dear to their father and that bringing Benjamin back will be an anxiety, will be a sadness for his father. And then when Benjamin comes back, Joseph plants a cup in Benjamin's sack and sort of accuses him of thievery. And one of the brothers, Judah, stands up for Benjamin. That's when Joseph finally reveals himself. And so Ramban says that all those 11 brothers at this point in the story haven't come down to Egypt, that Joseph's dream hasn't yet been realized, and that Joseph feels like he needs to bring the dream into reality. And so by asking Benjamin to come with the rest of the brothers, he's sort of helping to enact the dream that he dreamed. And so it all comes from a place of faith. And actually one of the textual proofs that Ramban gives for this interpretation is that it says in Genesis 42.9 that Joseph recalled the dreams that he dreamed. It doesn't say Joseph remembered the pit that his brothers threw him into. It doesn't say Joseph remembered all the bad things. It says the dreams. And Ramban says he recalled the dreams and sort of remembered that they hadn't yet come true and it was all motivated by faith. So that's the second interpretation. Yeah, so it's clearly a more positive way of looking at that from, again, textually, specifically Joseph not remembering the hardship that he went through and being sold into slavery by his brothers and being forsaken by them, but remembering that particular spiritual dream. So that's really interesting. Okay, good. So what else is there from, so then, from the Jewish The last tradition? interpretation, which actually I think is probably my favorite in a lot of ways, comes from the 19th century commentator, um, Samson Raphael Hirsch. And what Hirsch says is that Joseph isn't trying to embarrass his brothers. He's not trying to shame them. He's not trying to exact vengeance upon actually trying to test them in a certain way to see if they've changed. And actually Hirsch draws upon the thinking of the great Jewish philosopher Rambam, who says that you know that a person has changed, you know a person has experienced full what we call tshuva, sort of full change or full repentance, when they find themselves in the situation in which they previously sinned, and this time they make a different choice, right? So we notice here that there's something really elegant, that Joseph knows that in the past, when there was a favorite brother who was in a situation of harm, the brother's sold that brother down the river. They didn't worry for the pain being caused to the brother or the pain being caused to their father. They acted from a place of jealousy and and vengeance. And Joseph is testing them to see if they're really changed men by doing quite the same thing, by taking Benjamin, a favorite brother, and putting him in a situation of danger by setting him up with the goblet and the sack and seeing what they do this time. And in fact, when Judah steps up for Benjamin, it is proof to Joseph that his brothers have changed, that they don't want to cause harm to Benjamin. They don't want to cause harm to their father, but that they've evolved. And so that in certain ways is what allows the reconciliation that occurs next to really force. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea of of kind of providing a definition of, say, a repentance, a change of character, right? A change of heart is, I like that idea of the being placed into a similar situation a second time. Do you act similarly, right? As a way to, to gauge the degree of change. So Joseph, rather than doing this as a retributive act or even as kind of, I don't want to say going through the motions, but like kind of fulfilling the elements of a dream or a prophecy that this would be kind of creating instead then one way of seeing this situation as creating a scenario where he can test in a way whether or not his brothers have changed in the interceding however many years have passed between 
when they last saw each other. So yeah, that's really interesting. And those are two clearly different approaches, right? The last two that you provided. As a rabbi, you're preaching to the community, to your congregation, and you're choosing between one of these two different approaches. What would you hold up as being kind of the spiritual, devotional, kind of moral highlights or elements from each of those different interpretive approaches. So the first of the two then, then then the second, and maybe compare and contrast those. Yeah, I mean, to me, the third interpretation is the one that I really love the most for a lot of different reasons. Both, I think it helps to exonerate Joseph. I happen to be a fan of Joseph. And you go with the third interpretation, it makes his behaviors, which seem on the face of them a little manipulative or a little cruel, it, it makes them much more understandable. But much more, I think it leaves us with a really important message about family reconciliation. And actually, one of the things that's often pointed out is that throughout the entire book of Genesis, we have sort of warring pairs of brothers, right? Cain and Abel, and Isaac and Ishmael, and Jacob and Esau. And in each successive generation, the reconciliation becomes a little bit more, right? Cain kills Abel, there's really no reconciliation. Isaac and Ishmael reconcile to bury their father, but don't really go on to have a real relationship. After that, Jacob and Esau have sort of a more complete reconciliation. And then you get to Joseph and his brothers, and they actually really, the reconciliation is genuine and complete. That after this episode, the brothers come and live in Egypt with Joseph in the land of Goshen, even after their father dies, still sort of this family unity stands. So I think the third interpretation sort of is a lesson that you can forgive without forgetting, right? That what it means to really get over a past hurt is not necessarily to whitewash it and pretend it didn't happen. That I think as human beings, we have a need to sort of make sure that we can trust the person who hurt us before. We have a need to check out a relationship before we commit to it, but that it does tell us that when we learn that a person changed, perhaps we can be trusting again. And also it teaches us that change is possible, which is such a powerful lesson, right? That change is possible for individuals and also that change is possible even in the most fractured of relationships or families. And to me, there's so much about that that really, you know, provides a lot of sort of spiritual uplift. Yeah. And, and it's something that I think seems particularly relevant in the climate we find ourselves here in the United States, where there is so much tension between different like your ideological, political, religious, racial groups. That idea that we don't need to necessarily forget hurt that we've experienced, right? Wrongs that we've experienced ourselves, but that there is a way forward in that, that there is the possibility for change on both sides, all sides. And when given an opportunity, there's the possibility for reconciliation, right? For change, reconciliation. That is really powerful. What's nice about it too, is that it's not a Pollyanna-ish approach to reconciliation, right? It's not just love, forgive, everything's going to be fine, but it is about sort of self-protection, right? Acknowledging what's happened in the past and being a little protective moving forward, but also being open enough to recognize that other people have changed, that you might change, that the relationship might change. And so again, I think whether you're sort of looking at, at ideologies or political entities, or whether you're looking at fractured relationships in families and communities, that there's something really optimistic and hopeful about the idea that even deep, deep hurt, and there's deep hurt in this family, right? These brothers do a terrible wrong to Joseph, but even there, they can come to a place of peace and unity. That's really great. Okay, I'd love to talk about this more, but I think we'll need to shift gears here to get to our second focus here, which is Genesis 49. So can you give us, again, since your first abbreviation of 
the event was so great in yeah, the this, first case here. This so. will be shorter happily. Yeah, this, the first yeah. part of the Joseph story is long and twisty. And then um, after this, it gets a little bit easier. So after this reconciliation that we just um, spent some time talking about, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of hugging. Joseph's brothers go back to Egypt and bring back Jacob and the rest of the family. And the family lives together in Goshen in this particular area in Egypt. And this next episode that you and I are going to discuss happens really at the end of Jacob's life, at the end of Joseph's father's life, that he is close to death. And there's a tradition in Judaism that when someone sort of is at the end, that they provide blessings to their children. And in this episode, actually also grandchildren, pretty interesting part of the episode. And so that's sort of where we are, that Jacob comes to bless his children. And so there's sort of two interesting pieces of the blessings. The first is that Jacob blesses his children, but the blessings often read a little more like curses. These are blessings that uh, you wouldn't necessarily wish upon your worst enemies. The blessings sort of hint at some of the misdeeds in the past of the brothers and sort of foretell the future in ways that are not always um, so uplifting. So that's sort of one interesting piece. And then the other really interesting piece and a piece that's really interesting actually for the Jewish community is in addition to blessing his sons, Jacob also blesses his grandsons, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Menashe. And here, Joseph brings his children to his father to be blessed. And in Jewish tradition, the older son would be put on the right side and the younger child would be put on the left side. So Menashe, the older, would be put by the right side and Ephraim, the younger, on the left side. And that's how Joseph places them. But Jacob crosses his hands so that he's essentially giving a stronger blessing to the younger child, Ephraim, and a lesser blessing to the older child, Menashe. And so that is very interesting to Jewish commentators. And we can talk a little bit about that if you'd like. Yes, I would very much like that. So let's see, for the sons themselves first, was there any particular approaches there that you found particularly relevant, interesting, confusing, or since we do have limited time, we could focus on the blessing of the grandchildren. So I'll, yeah, well, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll start I'll with that the grandchildren because some of what I would say about the grandchildren, I think, dovetails into blessing in general. So again, a number of different interpretations, maybe I'll just start with one. But, but one of the things, one of the real interpretive streams when it comes to this blessing of Ephraim and Menashe is that this is just one of many, many, many examples in the book of Genesis where primogenitor, where the sort of the prominence of the elder is inverted, right? That whether we're talking about Cain and Abel, where the younger brother's sacrifice is preferred over the older, or Isaac and Ishmael, where Isaac ends up, even though he's born second, to sort of become the progenitor of the Jewish people or Jacob and Esau, right, the younger son emerging from the womb first, or Joseph and his brothers, where Joseph is not the eldest son, and yet he rises to a position of power, as does Judah, who is also not a youngest son. Over and over again in the book of Genesis, there is this inversion of the idea that the eldest son should reign supreme and inherit supreme and all those things. And one of the explanations that's often given for that is that when we think about this time in early Israelite history, that the Israelite community were sort of the younger sons on the scene. They were small and they were scrappy and they weren't necessarily the most powerful and most prominent. And so the idea that their own stories would indicate that the younger would one day come to supplant the older or that the younger could somehow come to overpower and supersede the older, that was a very powerful message. And so we see that, as I said, through the book of Genesis and then also even into Exodus and beyond, this idea of the younger, the less powerful, the weaker, coming to gain prominence. And as I said, that's also a theme to some extent in terms of the blessing of Jacob and his sons, that it's not the eldest son, it's not Reuven who gets the most glorious blessing, it's not the elder sons, but it's actually some of the younger sons who have a more prominent role. 
Okay, so that's one way of reading the text there and what's happening, looking at larger patterns within the book of Genesis itself. So in terms of Jewish interpreters, what have they brought to the discussion about why Jacob is doing what he's doing there? Yeah, so again, some interpretation sort of goes in this pattern of, you know, of really sort of showing the inversion of the firstborn. There's another a line of interpretation. Um, actually, this is a pretty modern scholar, although I think it's a really interesting interpretation too. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who actually just passed away in the past year, he writes about instead is he looks at the names Ephraim and Menashe and what the meaning of the names is. And he points out that Menashe, the name Menashe, actually the Hebrew root means to forget, where the root of the Hebrew name Ephraim means to be fruitful. And so what Rabbi Sachs says is that Jacob sort of in his dying days, that what he wishes for his children and grandchildren is not forgetting. And actually, this becomes even more powerful when we remember that Joseph, who was living in diaspora in exile, named his sons, right? And so Jacob doesn't want, Joseph doesn't want the community to forget their history, forget their family, forget everything that came before. Really what Jacob wants is to put forward growth and productivity and moving forward. And so Rabbi Sachs says that's one way of understanding the swap, that it's about the values that, that Jacob wishes to champion, which I think is also kind of a really interesting, beautiful idea. So the abundance of Ephraim as being productivity and wanting to emphasize that kind of, even just in the name, if a person is an embodiment or an illustration of that idea of fruitfulness, then kind of putting the emphasis there on moving forward rather than the opposite. So it's, yeah, that really, that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating approach. Are there other ways that different interpreters have looked yeah, at that? Yeah, so sort of the last thing that I talk about is that actually in Jewish tradition, Ephraim and Menashe become important in a way that's sort of surprising, right? You know, Jacob has 12 sons and Ephraim and Menashe are grandsons and they actually are not huge characters or huge personalities in Jewish history. But it turns out that on Friday nights at Shabbat, Jewish parents bless their children and the blessing given to Jewish boys is may God God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. And this is really interesting, right? Not may God make you like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or like Moses, or like King David, or like some of the towering figures in Jewish history, but may God make you Ephraim and Menashe. So there are a number of different interpretations for that in particular. One is that the fact that we bless our children by Ephraim and Menashe is actually an embodiment of what Jacob says in this chapter, right? He says, may people be blessed by you, may future generations be blessed by you. But also Ephraim and Menashe, both are the first pair of brothers in Torah to get along. I mentioned sort of all the strife through the generations, but Ephraim and Menashe actually seem to get along, or at least we have no evidence to the contrary. And actually, Ephraim and Menashe also grow up in the diaspora, right? They grow up in Egypt. And so, you know, even Israeli parents bless their children by Ephraim and Menashe. So you have to sort of twist this interpretation a little bit. But certainly for diaspora parents to say, may you be like Ephraim and Menashe, may you be like children who, even when they were raised in a non-Jewish environment, they held on to Jewish identity. There's something powerful there. And so sort of connecting back to this particular episode, one of the other interpretations is that perhaps the swap of Ephraim and Menashe was meant to symbolize that birth order is not the most important thing when it comes to developing character, that each of us has the opportunity to chart a course for ourselves to become who we're going to be in the world. It doesn't matter if we're born first or we're born last, that birth order is not determinative, that actually the circumstances of our character and our grit and our choices, that's what causes our path in life, not the order in which we happen to be born. And so there's an idea that that's what Jacob was trying to symbolize when he crossed his hands. And don't think that just because one was born first and one was born second, that that sets out a path for you. Um, your path can be of your own choosing. 
I really like that. And that's a really fascinating tradition, the kind of Shabbat blessing of children in the Latter-day Saint community, how Latter-day Saints have kind of continued the tradition of Jacob and blessing is through this procedure called patriarchal blessings. And this is something that each member of the church can go to a ordained patriarch for their particular area and receive a blessing that kind of is certainly in many cases longer than what we read Jacob's blessings, not just kind of a tweet length of here's <laughs> here's what you did, here's what you're going to be doing. But it, in, in many cases, kind of outlines the spiritual potential of that person, right? The things that they could accomplish in life and things, you know, attributes, qualities that they should perhaps focus on and try to cultivate throughout their life to live the fullest, you know, richest life possible. So also another something that's interesting in this context is each member who receives this blessing from this patriarch who's kind of standing in the shoes of Jacob in a sense here. They're given kind of a spiritual lineage that goes through one of the 12 tribes. Mm, uh, so each lovely. member has one of that, which is which is why if you come across Latter-day Saints and they say like, oh, we're, we're cousins or, you know, what tribe are you from? I'm from this tribe. That's what they're getting at is this kind of spiritual inheritance or identification that they're given in one of these blessings in a, in a spiritual way with these different tribes of, of Israel. So, so I think that idea of blessing children at Shabbat is something that Latter-day Saints could certainly resonate with. And I like that idea of that happening. So that happens every Shabbat. Yeah. Every Friday night, um, parents bless their children. And as I said, they bless their female children too. They bless their female children. They'd be like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. So again, it even casts into sort of darker contrast, Ephraim and Menashe for the boys and the matriarchs of Jewish tradition for the girls. But there is really an idea of what you're saying as well, you know, with Jacob and his blessings, the idea of sort of blessing passing down through family and through generations. And actually, you know, the very idea that Jacob blesses Ephraim and Menashe in addition to his 12 sons, the idea idea, and he even says this, that he sees Ephraim and Menashe as being sort of his, like his own children, right? It's sort of a, a way of expressing spiritual connection along with the actual words of blessing. That's great. I like that concept of not taking the sons and blessing them with Ephraim and Manasseh. And then just, well, the daughters are sitting there kind of waiting, waiting around. So I really like that idea of giving all of the children blessings. Yeah, because if so you notice, kind of... like a little feminist, you know, um, insertion <laughs> that he blesses, Jacob also has a daughter, a daughter, Dina. She does not get blessed in Genesis. So that's sort of an interesting omission. They said Jewish tradition is its practice today when we bless our children on Friday night, right. we bless our male and our female children. But that is sort of, in my mind, a glaring omission from the blessings that Jacob gives to his children. And there's also a really interesting lesson in terms of the blessings that Jacob gives to his children. You know, as I mentioned before, to call them blessings is even, you know, a, a little bit funny because they don't exactly read that way. But I've also heard that section of, of Genesis used as a way of talking about the fact that we should sort of have the honesty and the wisdom to see our children as they are, right? Children are generally not perfect. And so Jacob, you know, maybe one of the things that Jacob actually was able to do was to see his children really as they were, warts and all. And even and if we might wish that on his deathbed, he would lean a little more towards the, that there's a lesson there, a message there too. The kind of Shabbat experience of kind of incorporating this idea of a father, patriarch, grandfather that's blessing the family. I like the institutionalization of that on a weekly basis, right? So you're constantly getting that reminder and that kind of family connection of blessing and connection through blessing. Whereas in the Latter-day Saint community, this patriarchal blessing is a kind of usually, typically only once in a person's lifetime do they get this oh, wow. particular really blessing. So in some senses, because it only happens once, it's seen as incredibly special and something yeah. you know, that is courted and get a written copy of 
of it to kind of return to and reflect on later. And there's certain benefits to that, to kind of having a singular experience. But then likewise, there are other benefits to the kind of continual, repeated, weekly, you know, something that that is reminding you on a continual basis of this particular familial connection and sense of blessing that is that I really like as well that's happening and incorporated and of, into that. And of course, it's like family connection on two levels, right? Because it's your own family sitting around the Shabbat table, but then also by invoking Ephraim and Menashe, you're sort of connecting back to, to mm. the family of the Jewish people, right? To this original yeah. family, which is really very beautiful, I think. Yeah. And one of the parts of Jacob's blessing you know, to Joseph that the Latter-day Saint community kind of picks up on that I think ties into that is this idea of Joseph being a fruitful bough, right? And, uh, you know, running his branches, running over the wall. And so where the Latter-day Saint community kind of takes that idea is in the Book of Mormon, which is this you know record of a people with prophets who were warned about the Babylonian destruction and then came over to the new world and established a kind of covenant community there. And that community in the Book of Mormon, in a number of different places, talk about being a branch of Israel. So, you know, Joseph has these fruitful bough with branches that were one of these branches and specifically from the line of Joseph. Joseph specifically, this is an illustration for those that are writing in this book, that they are kind of a realization of that promise in Genesis 49 that Joseph's bows will run over the wall. Mm. They run so far over the wall, like over the wall, over the ocean, and <laughs> now in the Americas that they're here and then kind of flourishing and then going into decline and flourishing and then finally becoming annihilated. But that's kind of where Latter-day Saints would see themselves kind of in this overarching story and as part of that blessing, but kind of one of those unfollowed avenues of the fulfillment of that idea of, of Joseph being a fruitful bow and Joseph's posterity as kind of continuing on and doing something fruitful and maybe unexpected as branches and weeds and other plants often do, right? Or prizing and growing in strange places. So I think that that kind of ties into that idea of, of connecting, like you said, these kind of blessings, connecting individual families, but also connecting to larger traditions, you know, across centuries, across Absolutely. millennia. It's a beautiful idea. I love that. Okay, great. This has been fascinating. And I would love to keep talking about this, but I'm going to look here at the questions that we have. And one of them that I saw was the uh, coat of many colors, the, the King James interpretation, decorated robe of some sort as that component in talking about birthright and some of the preference that Joseph gets. The question from the audience member was, was that coat in a sense from in Jewish tradition, was that an indicator of favoritism or perhaps, you know, a birthright of sorts kind of actualized in clothing? And that's what Jacob was intending with that. What are your thoughts about that idea? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the coat of many colors is actually very strange in that it's not necessarily like a motif generally that favorite children get special cloaks. I mean, obviously resonance to royalty in general and robe. And when you read the context of the story, it's clearly a mark of favoritism. But what is pretty interesting is that clothing and cloaks play a role through Joseph's life and a number of key moments. And Jewish commentators do notice that, right? So first we have the coat of many colors at the beginning. Then when Joseph's, I sort of glossed over this for purposes of time, but if we remember when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, they tell their father, Jacob, that he has been killed by an animal. They take his cloak and they dip it in blood, right? So here the cloak that was initially an object of sort of favoritism and, and signaled preference now sort of is flipped on its head and becomes 
becomes sort of this very tragic symbol. And then also in the story with Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar, clothing comes into play because grabbing on to Joseph's robe becomes an important part of the story. And then when Joseph comes to a position of prominence in Egypt, changing his clothing from sort of like the sackcloth of the prison into the royalty of Egypt becomes an important motif. So we sort of see that clothing at different points in Joseph's life, it follows him in interesting ways. And then I'll also share that Jewish tradition has a lot of what are called Midrashim, sort of rabbinic stories, that Joseph was a very handsome man. And they probably have these stories because of what happens with him and Mrs. Potiphar, and that he liked to frizz his hair and sort of cool his eyes and prance around in fancy clothing. So he definitely is someone who is associated with clothing in all kinds of different ways. That's really interesting that, yeah, the changing of clothing as being a shift in identity. And that's really interesting. So with that kind of, again, focusing on Joseph and the favoritism that he's receiving, are there any things that comes to your mind in Jewish tradition that deals with Joseph's feelings about his reaction to, say, his father and Esau or Laban, right? What was happening there? Or even how the favoritism between, you know, Rachel and Leah is there anything that kind of gives an insight into how Joseph was perceiving that idea of favoritism or even the favoritism when it was applied to himself? Yeah, I'm not sure there's so much about how Joseph perceived the favoritism himself, but there was a lot, a lot written in Jewish tradition about this idea of favoritism passing down through the generations, right? In Judaism, there's this idea called midah neged midah, which means basically measure for measure. And it's often pointed out that Jacob, who, you know, both is a product of favoritism and someone who picks favorites himself, is also the man who sort of tricks his elderly father when his elderly father can't see, and then is tricked by his own sons later. And so there are sort of all kinds of ideas that the parental favoritism and the sibling rivalry that we see in the story of Jacob and Esau or with Rachel and Leah, that it gets passed down through the generations and it sort of lands on Joseph and his brothers. And I think one of the ideas is last you read the Torah and sort of think, oh, well, this is the way families should be. They should pick favorites, right? That's the way that it always has seemed to be that actually the message is sort of an inverse message, right? Look at these families who have picked favorites. Look at these families who have acted in such a way and and problems that it has brought. And so it's sort of a negative example rather than a positive example. Thank you. I actually see a question here from Rabbi Mark Diamond, who was our guest a few weeks ago and who is in your congregation. <laughs> He's a member of my congregation <laughs> and a, a good friend. <laughs> so Mark's question here is, Joseph is the first hero in the Bible who grows up in the diaspora, marries a high society spouse, wears fancy jewelry given to him by Pharaoh and takes a liking to fancy sports cars or chariots. <laughs> and what Rabbi Diamond would like to know is what you think the story teaches us about the challenges of maintaining one's identity in a foreign land, which I think yeah, is a great I question. I, I think it's a great question. I think that that is a really important part of the story of Joseph in general, both Joseph and, as I said, when we think about Ephraim and Menashe, that I think in a lot of ways, Joseph is an example of someone who could rise to a position of power, secular leadership, who clearly enjoyed sort of secular dress and food and married an Egyptian woman. And yet his values remained very much rooted in the Israelite tradition, right? His connection to his family, his belief in God. Joseph is a really, really faithful man. Every time things go well for him. Every time he's able to interpret dreams successfully, he always is very clear to say that that comes from God. And so I think he is an example of someone who is able to live in diaspora and yet hold on to, to Jewish values and traditions. 
And that, that the story of Joseph and Asenath is something that's picked up in Christian tradition. You know, there's the Second Temple period text of Joseph and Asenath that later Christian authors then kind of put a particularly Christian spin on it. Comes this model story of living in a world where they don't share your particular religious values and how one can be blessed in that. And in this particular case with Asenath, she almost undergoes a transformation to becomes chosen. Even though she wasn't born into this lineage, she undergoes this transformation and can remain in part of this kind of unique identity. So that's a well, very- And also just to add on to, I mean, what's also interesting is not only Joseph, you know, ends up having this pretty balanced, positive um, diaspora experience, but his brothers come and join him in Egypt. And that becomes more nuanced when we move into the book of Exodus, right? Because obviously things don't go so well for the Jews in Egypt, but at least at this particular point in Israelite history, there does seem to be some amount of living together peaceably, not only, you know, in this particular family, but among these two nations. Yeah, the Latter Saint community is kind of working our way through the Hebrew Bible Old Testament this year. We're getting into Exodus in, in a few weeks. And so, yeah, so there's certainly different public opinion, if you will, about Jewish people who are visiting or staying and living and working in the land of Egypt. There becomes a greater tension there, certainly. One of the questions here that I think ties into the brothers kind of coming back and, and living there in Egypt. Somebody asks here, Joseph's brothers, even after that reconciliation initially there, you know, earlier in 45, that they still seem worried about his complete forgiveness in Genesis 50. So after these blessings, you might think like, okay, everything's okay. But then there's, yeah, there seems to be real worry that Joseph is not going to forget or that he still is just kind of waiting to do something. So what are your thoughts on that it's from Jewish tradition and from your own teaching about this sort of things, insights that you have? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true, right? Especially after Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers, I think, are very concerned that Joseph is showing them kindness while their father is still alive. And once he's dead, that everything may change. And you know, Joseph, I think, is really magnanimous and gracious. Like one of the ways that I use the Joseph story is to really teach that change is possible, right? And the character of development is possible. My own read of Joseph is that I find him at the beginning of the story. And in Genesis 37, I think he's a little bit arrogant. He's a little bit, you know, whether he feels like he needs to share his dreams because they're from God or whether he's sharing his dreams because he wants to lord himself above his brothers. At the very least, he's a little bit tone deaf. And by the end of the story, I think he's come to be a much more graceful and gentle and diplomatic person. And really what he says to his brothers is, you know, this was all for a greater purpose, right? God caused this all to happen and I have no enmity towards you. And I think it's a real example of tshuva, of change and repentance and of reconciliation and repair. And sort of as we were saying earlier in the conversation, to me, it's a very powerful example that that kind of true repair is possible, right? Even when it seems like maybe it wouldn't be, maybe it shouldn't be, that it really is. Yeah. And there's doubt there, right? So there isn't just kind of a one-time fix all for yeah. this trauma that's being experienced that's right. there in the family, right? That even if, yeah, you say like, yes, if you're on the receiving end of the forgiveness, you've done something wrong, you ask for, for forgiveness and you're given that. It makes sense to me in traumatic situations, you know, the pain that you've caused. It's hard to imagine and believe that this other person could actually extend the forgiveness to you that you might feel that you don't deserve in full, even though Absolutely. you've asked for that forgiveness, right? So yeah, that right. is a really I often think about all of that, you know, what was it really like between Joseph and his brothers, right? As they began repairing their relationship, you know, I can imagine an awkwardness. I can imagine just a little bit of a inability to trust. I think about that sometimes between Joseph and Jacob as well, right? You know, we can ask the question too, why didn't Joseph contact his father all these years that he was in Egypt in the position of power, second in all command, lots of commentary about that as well. But for Joseph and Jacob also, 
So the complicated nature of coming together after all these years of separation and, you know, thinking your son's dead and learning he's alive and he's, you know, this Egyptian vizier, it's just kind of amazing. Right. And we see those types of stories in media, right? Television and film, right? So a father or a son that you thought long dead and then returns and then how that complicates things. Now you've moved on with your life and changed and kind of reoriented. And so it's very, you know, it's something that many of us experience in different ways and different degrees that we've been grievously wronged by people, even within our own families, and then having to overcome that. And how do we deal with that? And having those sort of situations kind of repeat even sometimes in our lives, how do we respond to that? And so, yeah, so I think this is a great story that provides very real experiences and seeing, like you were mentioning before, Joseph's holding open the possibility of reconciliation and extending that kind of grace or mercy or you know kindness to his brothers is inspiring for, I think, all of us. But I think, like you said earlier, also, so that it's kind of a guarded or it seems to be a wise sort of reconciliation according yeah. to the interpretation that you provided that forgiveness is good and we should be forgiving. And there's a scripture in Latter-day Saint tradition that talks about each individual is responsible for forgiving everyone. And it's God who decides who actually is worthy of forgiveness or not. But because we are not God, we're responsible for forgiving everyone and then trust that God is going to sort through. There's some very similar things in Judaism. Yeah, similar ideas in Judaism as well. Forgiveness is a really powerful value in Judaism. And the idea is really that you should forgive. And if someone asks you for forgiveness, that there's a duty to accept. And I think some of that we see in this story. That's great. Yeah. Okay. I have a few more questions here, but I have a few minutes left. So somebody's asking here if there's Jewish tradition that you're aware of in terms of Joseph's dreams that he's has. Are there traditions about Joseph in addition to those dreams, kind of prophesying the future beyond just these the kind of pair of dreams that we see earlier in Genesis? I mean, Joseph, it clearly has this knack dream interpretation because it's not only sort of the dreams he has as a child, but it's his ability to interpret dreams for other people, right? Including for Pharaoh or for his comrades in jail. I think what's really important about Joseph's dreams is that Genesis makes really, really clear that Joseph's ability to interpret these dreams comes from God. And so in that sense, he is really a prophet, right? It's not just like a skill that Joseph has, but it's really like a divine given gift that he is able to call through himself. Yeah, that's interesting. So again, this is going back to Latter-day Saint tradition. There's a tradition that has Joseph actually prophesying about what's going to happen to Israel kind of in between. So this is in Genesis 50 in what's called the Joseph Smith translation, which is kind of midrash of sorts, kind of spiritually inspired midrash on the text itself. And so before, when Joseph's talking about descendants, posterity, right before he's going to die, he essentially gives a kind of prophecy about what's going to happen to Israel and then kind of prophesies of Moses and that Israel is going to be able to return to the land of Israel and doesn't just kind of leaves them hanging in Egypt for a while, kind of spells out how it's going to happen in some ways. And then also mentions other descendants of his own line, one of which is that branch that kind of comes over here to the Americas, that the first prophet, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was Joseph Smith. And so there's an emphasis on like this name of Joseph itself, right? So that Mm. he in some Mm. sense is kind of a spiritual kind of continuation of this line of Joseph that was kind of fruitful bow 
prophet was favored of Jacob, right, of Israel, and then is going on to kind of continue to magnify the blessings of God and kind of shore up the covenant of God among those people who want to enter into a covenant with God. So that's another kind of interesting tie there. um, Yeah, I think some of our audience Jewish tradition, but that is really interesting. Yeah, (laughs) right. Okay. Lastly, I think this is, I think maybe I'd love to hear just kind of like your final thoughts on Joseph. Just so the character of Joseph, you mentioned about, you know, what ideas are most powerful to you kind of at the end of the day, what do you find most inspiring about Joseph, his experience in Egypt? Like what sticks with you? I mean, I think that the two things for me, and I've mentioned both of these briefly before in our conversation, I think that the two things that really strike me about Joseph's story is both the possibility for personal transformation for someone over the course of their life to grow and to change and to develop as a person. I see that with Joseph. I think he goes from being sort of an immature, braggart, and arrogant 17-year-old to being a person of real substance and moral character. And so sort of that arc and the possibility for spiritual development and change for individuals, but even more powerful. I think this theme of reconciliation that we've been playing with a lot, the idea that that Joseph and his brothers show us that people can transcend real hurt, real trauma, real pain in families. And again, not that that means imperiling oneself or trusting too soon or too fast or not being self-protective, but that by asking the right questions and by engaging in the right kind of conversation and by opening up oneself to trust that really damaged relationships can find a place of healing. And I think that that's a really beautiful, beautiful message. I hope indeed that's true in our world. We could use more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. Amen to that. Thank you all for joining us tonight for our Come Follow Me Interfaith conversation here with Rabbi Tucker. As I mentioned earlier, you can rewatch this event or listen to a podcast recording, if that's easier for you, by visiting our website at www.widsofoundation.org. The Widso Foundation, as you might know, is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're entirely funded by the generous donations of audience members like you. So if you find what we're doing here valuable and helpful, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at widsofoundation.org forward slash donate. So for our next conversation, that's going to be on March 20th. In a few weeks here, we're going to discuss the Passover, focusing on Exodus 12 and 13 with Rabbi Robert Harris, who is professor of Bible and ancient Semitic language at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, where Rabbi Tucker studied and went through ordination. So please come back for that. And thanks again so much to Rabbi Tucker. Thanks to you for sharing your insights Thank you so much for having me. This was really lovely. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, audience, for sticking with us and for joining us tonight. Thanks. Thanks.